So a couple of years ago, I was on a vacation somewhere, I think Door County maybe, and I was in one of those stores that sell all that kind of trinkety junk that you buy that you think is cool in the moment, but that ends up in your basement or at St. Vinny's. And I saw this sign there that said this, I don't feel like adulting today. And I'd never seen that before. And I thought it was funny and a little bit clever, but now I see it everywhere. And what it essentially means is I am going to regress into adolescent behavior. Now, I was an adolescent at one point. I know, shocking. I'm the parent of two children, one of whom is still an adolescent. I was a youth pastor for seven years and a middle school substitute teacher for three. I've spent a lot of time around adolescents. And I, I like kids. I, I do. I think there's a lot of, there's incredible things about 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. They're curious, energetic. They're fun. I like, like my son is hilarious. I love being around them. But there's also kind of the darker side to adolescents. Like some adolescents have a hard time regulating their emotions. Sometimes adolescents think they're right even when presented with facts that might suggest otherwise. In adolescence, there's typically an extreme focus on self. I read last week that by the time an adolescent is in adulthood, they will have taken 25,000 selfies. That's a lot of you. (laughs) Adolescents can be impulsive. So let me take you back to when I was 13, 14 years old. When I was an adolescent, my whole life revolved around skateboarding. Like that was my identity, that was who I was, that was all that I did. All of the clothes that I owned at that time had skateboard logos on them. My favorite was Powell Pearl to skateboards, nice skull and crossbones, skull on the back. I wore this six, seven days a week. The only day I couldn't wear my skateboard clothes was on Sunday to church because my mom said it was inappropriate to wear skeletons to church, which I I disagreed, but she was the mom and she won. So my whole life was, well, it was this. That was what I did. That was who I was. And if it was suggested that I do something responsible, like my homework or house cleaning, I had a difficult time regulating my emotions because all I wanted to do was skateboard. I wanted what I wanted. So when it was suggested to me that it might be possible that sometime in the future I would not be able to make a living skateboarding, I disagreed. Even when presented with the facts, told my mom she was heretical for even thinking such a thing. Because the truth is, I was an adolescent, and I was just growing in maturity. So when I say, I don't feel like adulting today, in an amusing way, we're suggesting that I'm reverting back to that. And I'm going to use that slogan as an excuse to be irresponsible, selfish, impulsive, emotionally immature, at least for today. Now, for some, it's gone from a joke 
to a mantra. So let me just, let's just take a minute together and address the elephant in the room. Is that okay? Can we do that? Because he's there, he's big, he's gray, and he's fluffy. The elephant in the room is, we're all on edge. Everybody. You can feel it everywhere that you go. Everybody's sick of talking about it. You're sick of, you're mad I'm talking about it right now. Just the last two years have caused just chaos in everybody's life. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are. There's just all this weight, even in the Christian church. And in some ways it's led to a, well, a lack of adulting. Maybe it's the small insults we make, the snarky comments. Everybody thinks they're right. Everybody's right. I've watched people scream at each other in public places over the dumbest things. I've watched video of passengers punch flight attendants in the face. Destroying things. Seriously. (laughs) Now, because of my personality type, I'm highly empathetic, which is good and bad. The bad part is, is I... I can see so many sides of a, of a situation that I have a hard time making a decision and a hard time even taking a side because I can see everybody's perspective. It's, it's really easy in our faith to get to this place where we say, I don't feel like adulting anymore, so I'm just going to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, I'm going to speak the truth, I don't care who I hurt. Or what it, and we regress into adolescent religion that is not honoring to God. Over the next three weeks, I want to focus on two passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12. If you were to ask me this week what I believe the future of our church is, what God is leading us to do and to become, it's Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul in both of these passages of Scripture is speaking to two different churches on the importance of growing into spiritual maturity. So in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he writes this. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you. You ever begged someone? You ever had someone beg you? Begging is almost a pathetic practice. Like it's, you're at the very end, like, like I'm begging you, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you. To lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Binding yourself together with peace. Skipping down to verse 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of the Son of God that we may be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children, We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth, but in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. 
So, so in this passage, the, the Apostle Paul quite plainly says, here's the result of spiritual maturity. It's living a life worthy of your calling. It's being humble and gentle and patient. It's making room for others' faults because we have faults too. It's being loving and living united. Not uniform, but certainly united. Living in peace. And therefore, the exact opposite of that, the results of adolescent religion are arrogance and closed-mindedness and harshness and impatience, judging everyone's faults, condemning, divided, discord, shallow, lifeless, and cold. Like, I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of anything like that. And I think we can all agree, and I think we've all observed some of that happening in the Christian faith. So how then do we move from adolescent religion to spiritual maturity? I want to move to Romans chapter 12 this week, and we're going to focus on verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul again writing says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So from these two verses, there are two practices that kind of launch us towards spiritual maturity. The first is living fully present to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, I beg you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The word therefore, which begins this sentence, is a significant word. It's an important word because it's a transitory word. The Apostle Paul is moving from theology to application of that theology. Verses, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing about things like justification by faith. He's writing about things like because of Jesus, we have incredible access to God. We have the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal life. Because of Jesus, we have experienced incredible grace and mercy. His spirit lives in us, and whether we're Jew or Gentile, we all have God's promises. Therefore, because of all of that, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, offer your whole self. Live fully present to God in all things, in all ways, and on all days, because this is your true and proper worship. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think happens in our body. So presenting our body means staying aware that the primary location in which we actually express all these things, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, is in our body. You want to know your innermost value? What's really important to you? Look at what you do each day in your body. The places you go, the things you do, the decisions you make. We're all presenting our bodies. And we present our bodies in all kinds of ways. Last Monday, I took my son to the Brewers game. We had a man weekend. Mama was gone, so that meant junk food and sports. And there was a lot of it. And we went to the Brewers game on Monday, which was, which was unfortunate because it was the one time they lost 12 to nothing. I mean, the crowd was entertaining at least. And so we sat there and behind us was these two guys and they were just enjoying the game like us. And about halfway through, maybe inning four or five, 
this gentleman who was probably late 60s, early 70s, steps out into the aisle and he starts talking to the two guys sitting behind us. And he's saying, hey, come sit with us. So clearly they know each other. He said, hey, these seats opened up next to us. Come sit with us. And the two guys sitting behind me said, oh, no, we're good. We're going to just stay here. And this older gentleman says, no, 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 come sit over here with us. And they say, no, no, we're, we're good right here. We're going to stay right here. Now, the more these guys said, we're going to stay here, this guy was getting really agitated. He went from like nice to agitated to angry. So I said, no, these are open. Come sit over here. And they said, no, we're good. Finally, this guy says, there's kids everywhere. Fine. He says a whole bunch of words and he flips them both off and goes and sits down. I'm like, I guess someone didn't feel like adulting today. (laughs) He was presenting his body. He's presenting himself. When the apostle Paul writes, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, he was nodding to his Jewish roots. In the Old Testament, the Israelites offered animal sacrifices as an act of worship. It was an offering for sins, but the offering had to die in order to be accepted. But because of what Jesus did, Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, giving his life, we now submit a new kind of offering. Not one that is dead, but one that is fully alive. We bring our whole self to God. We offer our whole self to God. This is holy and pleasing. And Jesus made it very clear that the holiest way that you can offer yourself to God is to love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself with all that you are. One of the values of our church is taking next steps with God, growing, maturing in our faith. Are we noticing the opportunities to more fully offer ourselves to God each day? Maybe there are our practices, behaviors, postures, attitudes that we have that when we present them, they're not holy to God. They're, they're something else. And, and if you don't know what those are, like ask someone, they'll tell you. Ask someone you trust. Because we all have blind spots, right? There are things that others can see that we can't see. Like about eight years ago, I was on a, a trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was with another pastor and we spent part of that time speaking in churches. Now the national language of the Democratic Republic of Congo is French. Well, I don't speak French and no one there spoke English except a couple of translators. So we're in a, in a worship worship service and the woman who's the worship leader is up on the stage there's hundreds of people and she's worshiping and it's vibrant and it's incredible now the democratic republic of congo is a third world country and very very poor economically depressed and many of the clothes that the people were wearing were clothes that were clearly donated from western countries like the u.s so this woman on the stage is wearing a t-shirt that was clearly donated from the united states or somewhere like it because she's up there worshiping, obviously she doesn't speak English, and across the front of her t-shirt, now, just, just don't, like, let me just, my language is just cover your kid's ears for a second, just, let me just, because if I don't tell you what it said, it loses its effect. The front of the shirt said, in big bold letters, you suck. And she's up there leading worship, and I said to my friend, like, should we tell her what her shirt says? She had no idea. She's up there worshiping the Lord. Think. I think sometimes 
intentionally, unintentionally, we present ourselves to the world and that's the message we're sending to them. What would it look like if rather I began each day just praying, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this day I offer my whole self to you. Help me love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. Help me to love my neighbor in my actions, my words and my thoughts. I live today not solely for myself, but for you. See, moving from adolescent religion to spiritual maturity means offering your whole self to God, not just your Sunday self, not just your church self, but, but my whole self. And secondly, the Apostle Paul goes on to write, I also want you to change the way that you think. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The phrase renewing the mind means change the way that you think. As you mature, your brain changes. Most studies in neuroscience will tell you the brain is not fully formed until your mid-20s. As I grew, I changed the way that I thought, recognizing that I'm probably not going to make a living riding a skateboard. During adolescence, the brain is actually remolding itself in such a way that some neurons are lost and have to be reformed and matured, which helps me understand what's happening in my house right now a bit more clearly. As you move from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, you change the way that you think. Maturity is a process, not an event. Birth is an event. Growing up is a process. So if I'm going to move from adolescent religion to maturity, we're talking about a process. The word that the Bible uses to describe this process is the Greek word metamorpho. It means, in English, metamorphosis, or it means transformation. Be transformed in the way that you think. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Listen, whatever is, whatever is true and noble and right and lovely and pure and good, think about those things. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold of thinking, but be transformed. Be transformed in your mind, in your heart, the way you present yourself to the world. Because see, a healthy process of maturity, a healthy process of spiritual maturity acknowledges with humility, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have God fully figured out, which really is a biblical idea because the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, all that I know is partial and incomplete. So if the Apostle Paul, who met Jesus, who wrote most of the New Testament, writes, what I know is partial and incomplete, then what I know is probably really partial and incomplete. But then someday, I'll know everything completely, just as God knows me completely the day when I stand in his presence. But until then, there's three things that last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love admits I might not know it all. I might even be wrong, but I cling to those three things. 
And we have such an excessive access to information that some have suggested we're so intellectually advanced that we can't keep up emotionally. And this easily drifts into our faith. I mean, we're so certain of our own certainty that we get stunted. There's no room for growth. There's no room for God to speak. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes that God gave church leaders to come alongside in the process. Back to Ephesians 4, verse 11. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth, but in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. I can find myself getting cynical real fast. Some people are born natural optimists. Others are born natural pessimists. And if I had to pick one, I suppose I I can lean pessimistic. I just sometimes I can get there. I don't always like it, but I can kind of lean that way sometimes. So I notice things that are pessimistic. They jump out at me. I was on the internet this week and I found an article. And the title of the article, which was written by a pastor, the title was this, The Church is Not Dying, It's Failing. So I'm like, hmm, that's pretty pessimistic. I'll read that. (laughs) The sermon does get better. We're going to end hopeful, okay? But we're, we're not there yet. I want to just read a couple lines from this article written by a pastor. So please be forewarned. I'm about to be opinionated. You ever been opinionated? A couple of you. And my opinion is not warranted by research or numbers, but rather just an extensive exposure to and dedication to the church which is in one moment the most beautiful, miraculous thing, and at another moment the most maddening, obnoxious, and hurtful. And with that in mind, I say this. The church is not dying. The church is failing. And there's a difference. The word dying is passive. It's as if we are sitting around quietly, wilting away, while the culture around us turns against us and decides they're not interested in God anymore. It's as if gradually nobody wanted to play with us on the playground anymore. It suggests that we did nothing to engender this reaction. And friend, let's be honest, we kind of did. I've never noticed or perceived that people were not interested in God anymore. People are actually incredibly hungry for God. It isn't that people don't want to experience God. It's that the church of the 1950s is failing to be a place where that happens. In my life, I've met countless people people who don't like church. They're profoundly hungry to talk about God, profoundly in need of spiritual guidance, profoundly hungry for acceptance, trust, and love. And yet these people did not have religious communities that taught them how to be an adult in faith. 
never taught them how to go beyond petty religious behavior, never taught them how to safely discuss serious issues. Many of them never had churches who took their childhood religiosity seriously and then viewed them as dangerous and broken when they went through their very normal stage of questioning as a teenager. Many are deeply scarred by the sex abuse scandals and the abuse of authority in the church, and many just got tired of the petty squabbles. And that's our problem, not theirs. We failed to be mature and sincere in our faith and not the other way around. If we can't give people a space to meet the God that wants to meet them, then we failed in our mission. So I wonder, are they at least partly right? Back to the elephant in the room. Over the past couple of years, I have seen and participated in some fairly adolescent religious disputes. And in many places, these disputes are dividing the church down the middle. It turns people off. And I just think, this is me, this is my opinion, okay? I think the devil just laughs. I think he steps back and says, I don't need to do nothing. They're doing it to themselves. It's not typically over the orthodoxy of our faith. It's often over practice and opinion. And if you're here today and you haven't been in church in a while, maybe you've been hurt or frustrated or cast out or you've been the victim of an abuse of any kind, I just want to say I'm sorry. So many are discouraged right now. So many are losing hope. I believe what a hopeless, a hopeless world needs is a hopeful church. And I'm hopeful. I am. I am hopeful for the future. I am more excited about being the pastor of this church than I've ever been. Because we have incredible opportunity to be that light that God has called us to be. I read a story this week. It was kind of a memoir of a retired pastor named John Bisagno. He pastored a large and somewhat famous church in Houston, Texas. He was recalling the story of when he went to that church for the very first time to interview for the position of pastor. He said he walked into the building of that church. It was a weekend. It was poorly lit. People were huddled together singing songs, some slow dirge. He said it felt like a funeral and it was depressing. Then he said that afternoon, he was walking around downtown Houston, Texas, and he walked into a jewelry store that was having its grand opening. The jewelry store was well lit. Someone at the door welcomed him, shook his hand. There was an air of celebration. And he said after attending both church and the jewelry store, if he had an invitation, he would have joined the jewelry store rather than the church. I wrote in my notes here, can a, term, can, a, can a sermon change anything? Can one 30-minute sermon change anything? I don't know, but I hope so. I want to invite you into hope. 
I want to invite you into just an acknowledgement that we've got some work to do and that Christ is pushing us towards maturity. So this week, I want to challenge all of us to open up our scripture, open up the Bible to Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 and really read it. Really saturate yourself in it. Maybe pick a small part of the passage and read it over and over and over. Imagine that it's written to you. Pray the scriptures. Think deeply about what the words are saying. Because the scripture is alive. It's active. It speaks to us. And so as we close today, I want to read a portion of Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 12 as if they were written specifically to us. Not the church at Ephesus, not the church of Rome, but the church of Richfield. The church at Northbrook. So Northbrook, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God, every single one of you. Always be humble and gentle. Even with that person or that person. Northbrook, be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love and because you have a few of your own. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourself together in peace. Northbrook Church, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, offer your whole self as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Northbrook Church, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will.